Hey everybody, it's Drew from Sleep With Me, and I'm believe it or not, I'm live here uh, from Golden Gate Park, recorded live, uh, and I've got a little announcement. We're teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you two exclusive episodes. Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moments from tons of podcasts and creates playlist clips so you can try a bunch of shows out and find something new to love. Each playlist has its own topic or theme. You could try out the Music Decoded playlist with clips all about unpacking and analyzing music, uh, or Slice of Life, which is all about the crazy or incredible things that happen to everyday people. Also, Spoke has fun, exclusive content from Farrell. And that's why I'm here live at Golden Gate Park. I just concluded uh, recording one of these episodes that's only going to be available exclusively on Spoke. I'm lying here in the grass. Uh, you definitely do not want to miss these special episodes. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of Sleep With Me's exclusive Spoke episodes. You can find them all at Spoke.com slash sleep with me that's spoke.com slash sleep with me check it out uh and i'll see you in golden gate park at stowe lake bye guys finding quality denim jeans is tough and to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh almost impossible but at distilled spelled d-s-t-l-d you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use a promo code FERAL and check out and get it a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super-duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Feral Audio. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. And if you like my theme music there, it is by a band called Les Blanks. You can go to lesblanks.com and check out more of their stuff. Uh, if you haven't listened to my show before, it is exactly what the title implies there. It is a conversation with me uh, and somebody usually far more interesting and uh, well-versed in life than I am. Uh, but uh, regardless, I, you know, I, 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 it's good. It's a good show, even though I'm a part of it. Uh, <laughs> um, today's conversation is uh, a riveting and enthralling one. Uh, it's with Frank Mink, who uh, wrote the uh, book um, Autobiography of a Recovering Skinhead, and uh, he was a neo-Nazi, and um, we talk about how he is, his journey to uh, being on the good side of humanity, as he puts it, and uh, it's a really enthralling conversation. As you could tell probably from the sound of my voice, I'm still sick. I'm a sickly guy, I guess. I used to not be a sickly guy. And then I started getting healthy, or attempting to be healthy, and then I started getting sick a lot. So, I don't know. Maybe I should return to my uh, days of a half bottle of Jameson and uh, passing out on the floor. And maybe I was just sick that whole time, too, but I didn't know it. I was just blaming the Jameson. It's a tough question. It's like uh, egg, egg before the chicken type thing. You know what I mean? That's a real brain teaser. But uh, I was on the road. I was in Boston and Philly uh, doing shows with Mr. David Keckner. Didn't get a lot of sleep. Late nights, early flights. And when you're already sick, not a good, uh, not a good transition. Philly, a lot of argument over who has the best uh, cheesesteak. I meant to ask Frank Mink, uh, my guest today, be, uh, uh, which one is the, who's the better cheesesteak? Uh, we got sent to a place called Campos, and there was some great debate over we should have went to Sonny's, is what I was told we should have done. But uh, I'll tell you this, Philly, I like the city, had a really good time, name a lot of things after Ben Franklin. 
Uh, I guess, I don't know, maybe he's from there. I, I didn't pay attention in history class. Uh, or maybe it's a different Ben Franklin. I don't know. Uh, great town. And uh, the week this airs, the show this airs, uh, I'll be in San Francisco the upcoming weekend. Really looking forward to uh, seeing you fine people in San Francisco. Other than that, folks, my life is all right. I got no big big event stories this week. Just uh, drink too much beer in Philly. And you know what? They encourage it there. That's what I noticed. I'm going to blame you, Philly. I'm going to be a classic guy who drinks too much and blame other people. Not take any responsibility for myself. Without further ado, no more chatter. Let's uh, listen to a very riveting chat with uh, Frank Mink. is it's fucking riveting man i mean it's like i was the the beginning part of especially with your with your childhood and and whatnot it was it's almost so intense that it's i got like i i think my shoulders hurt after like reading it for an hour because i was so clenched up <laughs> mm. yeah i didn't I didn't have the uh you know the parenting that uh, a lot of normal people have so you know, so when you, I don't know, you just see that stuff with uh, with other kids when you hear people are coming from them rough backgrounds. It's I always have empathy for them because I get it. I get that part of, I mean, even just a part of like your parents just not paying attention to you at all, even when you're doing good things, you know. And so, you know, it's kind of yeah. Good. Well, I I just I could relate to that. I mean, I had a pretty. I don't think my childhood was as violent as yours, but it was definitely violent. Uh, my f- father died when I was 12 through uh, a violent way, and my mother just kind of checked out. And I, I like, and it was interesting because I think it was around the same age. Like, how old were you when you got involved with the neo Nazi movement? Uh, it was, uh, I just turned 14. So it was the summer of me turning 14. Yeah, like at 13, I was, I got involved with what I would call kind of a, a borderline cult, but is, which it seems like, is, do the Nazis, do they seek out people that young? Cause it's, they're so impressionable. You know, I, it's, it's one of those things I don't give to, to, see, to say that there's a game plan for them to seek out people like me would give them too much credit. Uh, it's one of those things with a lot of the kids, like we just kind of stumble into this stuff. Uh, you know, I kind of just came along because I've seen these, guys who I thought were cool and they showed me some attention, you know, I don't, the guys that I know that were, I was, that were recruiting me or were getting me into it, you know, they didn't have a big enough game plan in their head to think, you know, let's, he's young, he's impressed. They just seen that they liked me, that I hung around them and that, you know, eventually they weren't going to keep protecting me or keep calling me their own until I changed to be one of them. You know, there wasn't a big game plan. And that's how I was too with, with a lot of kids. I mean, when I was doing all my recruiting, you know, I didn't say like, here's my game plan. Here's my mission statement. I'm going to go out and get 13 year olds. You know, it was like whatever I can stumble across, I think will make a good member or a loyal member. Then I'm going to generate and show most of that kid attention and I'm going to really kind of let him think he is so cool that I want to just constantly hang with him and I'm really just kind of just slipping in little uh, uh, tidbits of the movement and tidbits of what a a neo-Nazi is and what we stand for so you know and uh, so yeah I mean that's just how I recruited a lot of those kids one of my biggest recruiting tools especially when I was like in Springfield Illinois I was recruiting all these uh, skateboarder you know, emo punk rock kids. And uh, I was recruiting those kids because I was hanging out at their high school. And even though I didn't go to the high school, I mean, I hung out there. I mean, I was 17 years old. I mean, me, I'm 38 now. Me saying I hung out at a high school now kind of sounds pedophilish. But, <laughs> but I mean, I was, I matched the age. I just happened to have tattoos, you know, on my neck that made me stand out a little bit more from the other 17 year olds. But when I recruit these kids, uh, what I noticed was that a lot of the jocks and the gangbanger kids in Springfield, which there were, you know, because Springfield was kind of the south part of Chicago and the north part of East St. Louis, and you had all these big black gangs and Latino gangs and, you know, white gangs. But anyway, they those kids were being picked on by those. And once I started hanging out at the high school, 
that kind of all stopped. And, uh, you know, you fast forward four years from that time when I was recruiting, I mean, that was straight Columbine stuff. Like, those kids were constantly picked on until I got there. And uh, what I started to do is uh, to recruit these kids. All the, I mean, I had a whole plethora of kids that were skater, punk rocker kids. What I was doing is I would recruit the boys, because I want to recruit boys, and then I start narrowing down the categories of how am I going to recruit them. You know, do I want to recruit... Um, you know, the smart kids? No. I mean, obviously, in the beginning, you don't want a, a gang full of nerds. I mean, it's not good street cred, you know? I mean, it's just not. And then I've learned throughout my life from growing up on the streets that I learned that there's, you always come across these guys who have that, uh, you know, I'm crazy. They always tell you how crazy they are. But they're always like the first ones to run and leave you in a fight, like I've noticed. They're always like the first one knocked out or curled up and turtled up in a fight, you know? So I didn't want to recruit too many of those. You, you grab a couple of them because you need some of them as pawns to take a punch for you in a fight, you know? But, uh, and do I want to recruit good looking guys? Absolutely not. I need no competition in this game of life. So <laughs> I recruit. They get in the way. I recruit one boy. Yeah, I recruit one boy, and he's the boy I dedicate all my time to, and that's the boy that drives a car. You know, in high school, especially in the skater scene, the boys that drove cars always had their cars packed to kids. So I knew if I recruited four or five of them, that's twenty members. And that's how I just started doing it. And I just would recruit kids that had cars and make them feel ultimate special. And I would always drive in the front seat of the car with them. I'd always call shotgun. And obviously, I'm the lead head guy, so I get shotgun. And, they, you know, getting in a, a skater kid's car and he's listening to the old Beastie Boys, I would pop that tape out. And i say, yo, these guys are a bunch of Jews from New York. And i throw the tape out the window. You know, and the skater kid would be like, oh, that's my only tape. And i say, well, here, you have a, here's a tape for you. And i give him some, like, skinhead music, some screwdriver or no remorse and some English skinhead music. And I said, here, this is your tape. You can have that tape. That's gonna, and now that tape is now, because in this tape deck, so this is the early 90s. So so they pop that tape in, and that tape now plays on a loop in that kid's car. I mean, every time I see the kid, he's, that album or that tape is constantly playing, and it's basically beating the drum. You know, it's like Fox News. It's constantly beating that drum of, you know, we're better, they're different, you know, F them guys. So... Yeah, that's, that's kind of a, 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 an interesting point about Fox News or, or in some like I was in I was actually in. Uh, oh, actually, this was in Boston. I was the other day and uh, my friend was doing an interview at the radio station and I had to listen to this other station that was being played. And the guy was just drumming this black and white and black and white. And it was so like I was just like this radio was just pushing forward racist stereotypes and breeding racism. And do, do you feel like something like Fox News or those that they're actually kind of feeding those movements? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Fox, it's, I mean, Fox News and there's some on the uh, on the black side, you know, you listen to some of them uh, black uh, radio stations in some of the bigger cities. I mean, it's just but Fox News is the king of setting that divide between, you know, we're, you know, Sean Hannity's perfect. We're great Americans. They're not. You know, that's basically his message all the time. I mean, every in and out of his show, you know, thanks for being a great American for listening to my show because the other people are not great Americans. They're horrible and they want to rip our country apart. And the whole rest of this hour, I'm going to tell you about them, guys, so that you could sit here and have nothing but, you know, hatred beating in you for the liberals, the, you know, you name whatever they're talking about at the time. And it's always, it's a constant beating drum. And my biggest fear is that uh, just like in Rwanda, you know, there was hate radio back then. That's what started the Tutsis and all that fighting going on in the machetes. And it was, was a radio, was radio stations that were constantly beating the drum of kill the cockroaches, which, you know, between the, the you know, in Tutsis and all the other stuff that was going on at the time in, uh, in in those countries and, uh, you know, South Sudan. And I mean, it's basically like hate radio. It's a hate speech, but it's just constantly put into a form of look at them guys. They're ruining everything that we have, everything we've ever had. Look how great our country was at one time. Uh, and now these people are ruining it. I mean, yeah. You see that too with, um, like I, I was wondering, like, cause you see a lot of that with, uh, I guess like the tea party and there's like those move, current movements, which seem to breed a lot of, racism especially when obama was running and first president and is it i wonder if these groups are consciously going after like because i feel like there's a, a portion of our country that is 
uh, you know, older white males that are kind of, um, you know, maybe feel threatened that there's more, say, Latinos in America than there, you know, like the the, the blacks and the native, uh, the Latin Americans are like their numbers are growing. And there's sort of like a fear base, like we're the minority, we got to do something now, or we're becoming the minority. Right. Well, and and when the Tea Party first came out, uh, it was actually kind of after Obama had got elected, and you know these people were screaming, you know, the, the Constitution and and uh, you know, and the debt that our children are now going to have to carry. Needless to say, that it was. You know the Bush era that kind of got us into trouble, but let's forget about that part because now there's a black dude in the in the in the White House. So let's get on this dude. And so these Tea Party groups, I start you know watching all their speeches, and I'm starting to see, and I start noticing that they're like using the same rhetoric that we used to use, except for now they're just changing a few words. I mean, they are almost word for word saying some of the same stuff that we used to say. But instead of saying the Jews, they say the federal government. Instead of saying, you know, uh, the blacks, they say the, the entitled people. You know, and, and it's, I mean, it was word for word, except for they just took out, you know, the hard racist language and it just slipped something else in there. Now, are these people going back and pulling, you know, speeches that the Aryan nations gave? No, but it's the same feeling. It's the same rhetoric that comes from it because it's that same, as you said, the feeling of we're losing this country. You know, we're going to become the minority soon and you know, we're not going to go kicking and screaming. And some of them have even talked about the separation of, you know, basically they'll try to say they want to separate from the conservatives to the liberals. But basically, you know, if you really read between the lines, the conservatism is the white and the liberalism is everybody else and the socialist. So we have to remember that in all of history, 100 percent in all of history of mankind, we've never separated from each other peacefully. Never, not once has that ever happened in the history of the world, and it's not going to happen again. So they could say they want to do it through the ballot box, but, I mean, you're talking about people who love guns. And so I have fear. I, I do have fear that we're going down something that's really uh, that's really dangerous for all of us in this country. So Yeah, it's uh, it seems... I mean, I don't know. I mean, you you look back at things like the civil rights movement and stuff too. There was just as much hostility, but I don't know. I don't. I I don't know. It just feels a bit. There seems to be a lot more anger and like separation. I don't know if I'm wrong in that. No, you're not. I mean, you are not. I mean, that's it is these. Uh, you know, we and and it's on both sides because there are the the far left that come in, but I mean, but. A lot of these people that are coming in with the that are Tea Party, uh, getting elected into our national uh, offices, um, they're not going in there thinking, "Oh, I'm going to make sure we can see eye to eye." They're going in there and saying, "We're all going to preach our agenda, and if we don't, then we're just going to crap on everything, and we're going to be the." I mean, our Congress and, and the Senate have been horrible the last eight years because. Mostly on the right, they're saying we're not going to agree to anything unless we get our way only, and and then they hold everything up and they shut the government down, and because there's no seeing eye to eye anymore, I mean, it's just not. People get elected on the, especially on the right, saying I'm going to go there and I'm not going to agree with these people, and I'm going to do everything to stand up for our principles, and basically what they're saying is I'm not going to help uh, mediate anything that's going to even let the liberals have anything to do i mean i mean you just watch fox news and you just hear it non-stop uh you know how can we just piss off the liberals you know i mean really that's like all they want to do is how can we say stuff that we know the liberals are going to run away and you know run and hide because here comes sarah Palin, who her new year's resolution is i'm going to eat more meat i mean she says that because she knows i mean that's what she said that's what she my that is her new year's resolution is to eat more meat and really she's just saying it just to piss people off you know the ted nugent style of just pissing off the liberals and, and there's no compromise there anymore they don't really care about all americans they just care about their people that believe in their point of view so and I used to, I I used to do that. I mean, that's what I used to do. That was my, you know, my calling. Even when I, when I was young, I was you know seventeen, eighteen years old, coming out of this movement. But I mean, I had my own cable access show before Wayne's World ever even got popular. I was in Illinois doing cable access shows. That was like a racist Wayne's World, and that's I did the same thing. Like, what can I say to piss off everyone that is not? Uh, that believes what I believe and make them 
scared, shocked, and also have that anger group that's going to come join me because they're angry like I am. <laughs> yeah. Did your show reach Chicago by chance? Because I feel like I saw it. Uh, I mean, I don't know if they, like, we weren't programmed to be on there, but I know at the time when our show first came on, I know that people were taking snippets and showing it on, like, local news and local news and all over the country because we were just, we were only, like, the second or third racist cable access television show coming out, let alone the other two were old men who talked about, you know, facts and figures. And here was these young guys coming up doing the show that made people laugh. We did little skits. I mean, we did the whole, but it was all about our beliefs. So It's funny because uh, I don't think most people equate uh, uh, neo-Nazi skinheads with sketch comedy. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, so, they're viewed as very humorless by most, I think. <laughs> but um, like, and when you were younger, because you, I think I read something else that you said you committed like uh, three hundred acts of violence. Um, and I, I was there was a and there's a moment too in your book where you're uh, I think you're beating on some guy, and you're in your head you start thinking like this could be my uncle, this could be my cousin, and I was curious like did you ever did you fully believe in what you were doing, or was there always some sort of was there ever hesitance of like, uh, I don't know if this is right? No, at the time, no, there was never hesitant. I completely 100% believed that my job was to be uh, a guardian angel of the white race uh, for this, you know, because our white race is dying. And I mean, I was, I completely believed it. And, and the, the violence, uh, you know, when I say 300 acts of violence, I don't mean that was like always me going and going out and putting that on people. I'm, I'm also talking about times people came and looking for us. I mean, obviously, when you're preaching hate like that, again, there are the left-wing groups that used to come around and come try to, you know, jump us or shoot us, and then there was this other gang. So there was, uh, you know, maybe 150 of those incidents of violence was people coming after us, too. Uh, and and granted, it's because we're putting that out in the world. You know, it wasn't like we were just pick, picking daisies and people hated us for it. We were doing some nasty things and people didn't like that and they were going to come find us. But when I would do violent things, there are a couple incidents where things were happening and I thought, man, I could, you know, this could be my uncle. Because one of, one of the times we were uh, fighting with these guys was there was a concert going on at a local college outside of Philadelphia and it was a reggae concert and this, this college was very liberal. And so we knew it was going to be very well attended. And we just thought, you know, these are all white kids are going to be, they're all being indoctrinated by going to this you know, reggae leftist show. So we waited and uh, we seen some, you know, white redlock kids coming out of the concert and, kind of got them away from the concert. We kind of waited until they walked far enough away and, and, and we were, we jumped them, as they say. And it got pretty violent. And there was that one moment in that time where I remember thinking like, because at the time my, my uncle was going to college, my dad's youngest brother, who was kind of close to my age, he was going to Temple University at the time. And I just remember for a split second thinking, this could be my uncle as we were already beating him. And my friend was putting a tack hammer into this guy's head. And I just remember thinking like, this could be my uncle. And I stopped for a brief moment, but then I seen all my other friends who were like, yeah, you know, jumping and into it. And, and that's what I lived for at the time. I lived for their approval. And I snapped right back into the Frank that I was at the time and continued to be violent. Um, you, know, you have to know that, uh, you know, I live for people's, Attaboys, you know, for accolades from people. That's what I live for because I didn't get it from home. And I don't use that as an excuse. I don't want people to think, oh, yeah, he had a rough childhood, so we're going to forgive him for these violent things. But the truth is, if you really want to get down to the truth, is I did things to people um, because I knew that my crew, the Philly guys, which I was the head of, and or, you know, second in command for a while, but then later on the head of, uh, I did this because I wanted my crew and for me personally to be known as these crazy, violent, we don't take crap from no one group. 
And so that's all I thought about. And so when I did these violent things, it's because I would hear later on, oh, Frank, you're crazy. Oh, Frank, you guys did this. Or I would hear people in other states in New Jersey, Delaware, New York, would talk about how crazy the Philly guys were. And I was us, and that's and I loved hearing that stuff because I never heard it from my family when I was doing great at sports because I was always a star athlete in my neighborhood. And I played on an all Irish football team in an all Irish neighborhood, and we played in a city of, of you know too many people were mostly black people, so we played mostly black teams, and we mostly got our butts whooped all the time in these travel pop Warner football. Except for me, like I'd always have two or three touchdowns a game. Um, you know, the, the black kids always gave me respect. I mean, even throughout all my sports. So anyway, I, I, I got accolades a little bit from sports, but not from my family or parents. And when I joined the skinhead group, I noticed I got the accolades that I wanted. I got the attaboy Frankie, you know, and I didn't get attaboys for getting a job or, you know, doing good things. I got accolades. I got the attaboys because I was doing violent things and I was preaching hate and I was really good at it. So, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's when you have that, I mean, would you say you had like, there was a hole, there was something missing in you before that? Cause that's, that's how sometimes I equate myself. I was just like, I've always been trying to fill this hole in my, the center of my being. And th- through that, you make some big fucking mistakes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, oh, absolutely. There was definitely, there was a whole, even after the skinheads, you know, I got into drugs and alcohol deeper and deeper, even after, out of the skinheads, there was always uh, a whole, you know, I, I think it was spiritual, you know, that was missing, a, I was spiritually bankrupt in a way. Um, other people, you know, that don't believe in God or whatever, just think, you know, there's, there's this hole that needs to be filled with, with good, but, um, you know, there was definitely a hole there. I mean, you know, when I joined the skinheads, my first real night of hanging with these guys, we were at a concert hall. And it was 19, this was 1989, summer of 1989. And we go to this concert hall in, in downtown Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And all these skinhead guys are showing up that I don't know, but my cousin knows them. So they're all hanging around. And they're going to go in and they're going to go beat people up inside this nightclub. And at the time, the other big hairstyle was for white people especially was the mullet. So these guys were gonna go in and beat up everyone with mullets. So kinda of I'm on their side. That's a good good cause, you know what I mean? So we're all gonna go into this nightclub and as they go in, um this bigger skinhead puts me on his shoulders and uh, he's kicking and punching this guy with a mullet and he tells me to kick the guy and I try to kick at him because I'm on this big farm boy skinhead shoulders in a mosh pit and I'm trying to kick at him and I'm not really doing the best job but I'm doing what he says and it's fun to me at the time because everyone's cheering us on and at the end of the night all the skinheads are kicked out of the concert hall because we've been in there all night fighting and getting in trouble and again I still have hair I have a little skater haircut and I'm with all these big skinheads what is guy that we were trying to kick comes walking out of the nightclub at the end and he walks over and he sees all of us and he kind of turns to go the other way so that big skinhead guy I'm with says come on Frank let's go see this guy and we walk over to this guy and he says yo buddy got something to say to us and this Malik kid is like no I never had anything you know what I mean you guys just started beating up I have nothing to say to you guys and I seen it for the first time fear he feared us and really he doesn't fear me because I only came up to the guy's hip that I'm standing next to <laughs> but the fear I love that he feared me and that's sick and it's demented and people that are listening are probably going to judge me and think that's really sick of me to be that way. But I'm 14 years old and up until that point in life, I feared everything. I went to an all black school where I fist all the time. My stepfather is beating the crap out of me. My dad could give a crap what I'm doing in life. My mom is no and void to anything in my life and rather just have her new husband than me. And I fear all that. And I don't even fear if I'm going to have enough food to eat today just to survive. And now somebody fears me. I loved it. And that's when I made that first turn to get into this. That's pretty heavy. And, uh, and to, to go back to the, when like you started to turn out of it, uh, was it, Prison was kind of the first time you started second-guessing your your beliefs. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, there was times where I remember thinking I would get released from, you know, our cell doors would pop open, and we had a big area where everyone could sit. And I was 
I mean, I'm unbelievably cool with all the Aryans, you know, there's all the mix up between American history, X and me, whatever. I don't really want to get into that one, but the truth is that in American history, X, he leaves the movement inside prison. That wasn't how it was going to happen for me. And it didn't seem like that, but I could tell you when my doors first opened, sometimes I started playing like football and basketball with some of the black kids on my cell block because they were young kids from Chicago and I was a young kid from Philly and we were in a Southern Illinois adult maximum security prison. I'm 17 years old. These kids talked about what I wanted to talk about. We talked about girls after we got done playing sports. You know, there was just a drive in me because I'm an athlete to always make my team better. And when you're a skinhead and you're really good at sports and you're playing all other black teams on all other black teams, you get cheap shotted all the time. And I would just get up and, I mean, I could talk tons of trash on the field because I could always try to back it up. But these black kids started seeing that in me and they liked that in me. They liked that. So we just kind of became friends. Well, when my doors would first pop open in the morning, I noticed sometimes I'd rather go talk to G from Chicago or Jello or Tony, and these are all black kids. Like, I'd rather kind of sit with them because they made me laugh a little bit more than if I just sat around my Aryans who just talked about, you know, whatever they, you know, most of them were bikers from Illinois, and I didn't know nothing about bikes. I don't know nothing about a Harley. I don't know nothing about a, you know, suicide shift change gear job thing. I didn't know nothing about any of that stuff. Right? So that didn't make me laugh. These guys talk about motorcycle jokes. I'm like, yeah, that's great. I've never even been on a bike in my life. But when I fuck around with the black kids who talk about taking public transportation, you know, I laughed at that stuff. So I just found myself sometimes wanting to be around them a little bit more. And plus I worked in a chow hall with some of them. And, eh, but I didn't change. Like, that wasn't my changing moment because I thought, you know, this is just prison. I'm going to get out. I'm going to go back to being the head skinhead guy that I was. I'm going to go back and run my own cruise. I was planning on getting out and doing – I had new ideas of stuff I was going to try when I got out of prison. But when I got out of prison, I also had to try and be a dad for the first time. I got a little girl while I was in the penitentiary. And I got to try and be a dad to this little girl and not go back to prison. And I remember thinking, like, well, this ain't going to match up too well. But her mother didn't want to have nothing to do with me because I was still this angry, racist thug when I got out of prison. I mean, I still acted that way. I still talked that way. Maybe inside there was some stuff going on inside me. But my outer, you know, if you quack like a duck and you walk like a duck, you're a fucking duck. And that's what I still was. So... Um, anyway, I tried to get out and things weren't gelling together with me and my ex and my daughter and she was young and I was trying to be a dad and didn't know how to be a dad. So I went back to Philly and when I went back to Philly, I got right back in with my skinhead crew, which is now even bigger since I left. And now I come home a legend. I kidnapped, I mean, I went to prison for kidnapping. So I kidnapped one of our rivals, which is like the left wing skinhead guys that there are. And I kidnapped like one of their guys. And so I came home a, a legend. And that fed my ego, see, because when you have people like me who are racist thugs or you even have gangbanger thugs or bullies today, as they call them, um, or just criminal-minded kids, we all have the same makeup. We're egomaniacs with no self-esteem. I mean, that's why when you hear about a kid, when I talk to a kid, and I'll get back to my story, but when you talk to a kid who's doing juvenile time, which I work a lot in juvie halls, and he's he's doing two years for breaking some kid's jaw, and I say, well, why'd you break the kid's jaw? Well, he disrespected me. Okay, how did he disrespect you? You know, he he walked in front of me. I mean, there's like little silly, stupid things like that. And I say, so for that, you broke his jaw? And I say, yeah, because he disrespected me. Well, don't you think there's a better way that you could have handled that? And see, well, if you look deep in that kid, he's an egomaniac who has to make sure no one disrespects him on the outside, but he has no character. He has no... you know, no way of, okay, I'm okay with this because I have, I have self-esteem. This kid disrespects me, but I'm going to go on and do good things in life. It's I have to handle this situation right now so no one ever disrespects me again. It's ego. So uh, when I get back to Philly, I'm this egomaniac who's being filled because now all my skinhead friends are new uh, recruits. They don't only heard of me, but I couldn't find a job to, pay, to save my life. I mean, I had a big swastika tattooed on my neck. I'm, you know, 18 years, going on 19 years old, out of the penitentiary, aggravated kidnapping on my record. I got the skinhead written across my knuckles. When I got to fill out a job application at Burger King, these ain't good people skills. <laughs> Nobody wants me around. So a, a, 
in that time, this Jew, a friend of mine said, hey, I can get you a job working at an antique show in the Cherry Hill, New Jersey Mall, carrying in and out antique furniture. And I thought that was great. And the guy says, yeah, pay me $100 a day if I go do this furniture. 100 bucks a day for a kid like me. I was like, I'll take it for three days only. It's 300 bucks. It's perfect. And uh, I go and work, and the guy goes, I got to tell you, the guy that runs the company is is a Jew. He still wants the job. I said, man, I don't got to talk to this guy, do I? And he said, no, I told Keith all about you, that you're some neo-Nazi. Keith said he doesn't give a shit what you believe. And his name is Keith Brookstein. He goes, he don't give a shit what you believe. Just don't break his furniture. <laughs> and I, sh- I showed up, and I worked for this guy, and... Uh, just was a, a cool guy right away. He was a big Philadelphia Flyers fan. I'm a huge Philadelphia Flyers fan. So anytime we did have that awkward Jewish neo-Nazi moment together, it was like, hey, how about them Flyers? How about them draft picks? You know. So, um, but you know, in my my ignorant head, still I thought at the end because I'd always been taught this, and some people don't like that I still say this, but it's just the truth. I thought, and again, in my ignorant way of thinking that this man was going to Jew me at the end of this business deal because that's what I'd always heard right never worked with a Jewish guy before and I made $600 in tips carrying in an antique furniture so I know he knows that so I figure out he's going to come to me on the last day I'm working for him and say hey you made $600 in tips I promise you $300 you got your money you know I'm not giving you anything else so I think that's what he's going to do to me so as he comes over to me and, and, and this is something that maybe you do, and everyone that maybe listens to this. You ever have a time where you, you think about a guy at work, and you, you hate this guy at work, and every time he says something, you say, that dumb motherfucker, today that's it, I'm done with him. Once I see him again tomorrow, he's going to say that same stupid shit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come at him with this, because I know he's really like this. And you plot out the whole argument in your head, and you have it all day long, you can't wait till you get back to work tomorrow, wait till I see that guy. And you think about it all day, and you go to sleep, and you wake up in the middle of the night, and you say, oh, wait until I see Gary tomorrow. Oh, I can't wait for him. He's going to say some dumb shit, and I'm going to jump on his ass tomorrow, because I'm done with Gary. And then you can't wait. You're going to work and you're driving, thinking, wait until I see Gary. I'm just going to dig right into him. I want to get right into this one. And you pull into work and you see Gary and you see Gary. And you're like, what's up, Gary? And Gary's like, no, I'm Frankie. What's going on, man? And you're just like, no, man, it's all good. You know, and that whole day, it ate away, you know? It's that resentment that they talk about. See, because I have a resentment at Gary. All that does is I'm drinking poison and hoping Gary dies. <laughs> That's all that happens in that moment. So. Right. So anyway, I had this moment with Keith that he was not going to pay me my money. So he comes walking up to me and he's like, hey, I owe you some money. And I'm like, yeah, you do. He's like, what do I owe you? I'm like, $300. Like, waiting for him to try and get out of this. And he goes, oh, 300 That's right. You know, so he counts, pulls out this big lot of money. says $300 because he had a really good antique show that weekend. He says, here's one, here's two, here's $300. He's like, you know what, Frank, man, you're a really good worker. You hustled your whole life. Hustled your ass off this whole time. Here's an extra 100 bucks." And I thought, you son of a bitch. You ruined it. You know what I mean? Like, I had it. Like, I had a fight with you, and you just ruined it. And after that, he gave me a ride home from Cherry Hill back to South Philly. And, and Keith has done a great time, a great job in explaining the story. But he noticed in the car, and we were in a big Isuzu truck, that I had something that he liked about me. And so when he was driving, he said, Frank, what do you do for a living? And he knew I didn't do anything. So I pointed to this last stick on my neck. I said, I don't do nothing, dude. <laughs> and he said, well, why don't you come work for me? And I went and worked for this guy, this very Jewish guy. And when I mean, he wasn't religiously Jewish, but as any normal person can realize what I'm saying, like he was very upper East coast Jewish. He was very like, Oh, you know, like, Oh, what are you doing? You know, know, he just, he fit the stereotype that I'd seen read and heard about, even though he wasn't religiously Jewish. And, um, I went, I worked for this guy and his biggest thing was don't break his furniture. And one time I broke something of his, and I was like, Keith, I'm so stupid. Cause I now I'm starting to admire this man because he started this business from nothing. And uh, I was like, Keith, dude, I'm so sorry. I'm so stupid. Again, that ego, self-esteem thing. Then when I make a mistake, I go, oh, I'm so dumb. So I was like, dude, I'm so stupid. And he just came over to me. He gripped me up, kind of, and he says, uh, stop saying you're stupid, you idiot. Let's go. So me and him cleaned up this marble top thing that I broke and we get in the truck and we're driving from North Jersey back to Philly on the Jersey Turnpike. 
as we're driving on this thing. And for any of you that know uh, New Jersey, the garden state, my ass. When you're on the Jersey Turnpike, it's not no gardens anywhere, you know. So you just sit there and you talk with each other. And the whole way home, man, he just kind of unloaded on me. And and he just kind of said that he hated when I said I was stupid. He's like, you're one of the most smartest people I've ever met, Frank. And one of the things that always stuck in my head that he always said to me, because if me and you were talking back in the day, he said, wow, Frank, you seem like a really smart guy. I was thinking, I got you fucking fooled. Well, that's how I always thought. You, oh, you got me fooled, or I got you fooled because I ain't smart. Well, when he looked over at me and we were talking, and I might have said something about, like, I'm not really smart or, you know, whatever. And he goes, Frank, look, smart people can fake being dumb, but dumb people can't fake being smart. You just are smart. Get over it. And as we were driving, I was just looking over at this Jewish dude, and I still had my neo-Nazi boots on that day, and driving in the truck, and I keep looking over at him, just like, not like it's not like one of them kumbaya moments where I wish this guy was my father, but I was just grateful to have this human being in my life, no matter what. He would do anything for me. So as I'm looking over at him, I just was so completely embarrassed in my beliefs, just absolutely embarrassed. I got tired, and this is what you find with a lot of racists. They always make exceptions, you know? Oh, I hate all ends, you know, use the N-word. I hate all ends, except for Mark, because I work with, work with Mark, and he's a cool black dude. He's not, a, he's not an N, he's black, dude. And then, and then what about Roger? Oh, I work with this guy, Roger, he's cool, too. And it's like, throughout racist life, they're always making exceptions. Oh, he's a cool black dude, but the rest of them. Oh, and he's cool, too, and his family's cool, too, but the rest of them. Oh, and this other guy I know, he's cool, too, but the rest of them. Right? You keep making exceptions. And I got tired of making exceptions all the time. So I just knew that this isn't my belief that we're created equal. Like a higher power in my life, science and human nature. And what I mean by science is if you look back to the timetable of when I'm getting out of all this, there's a thing going on at the time called the O.J. Simpson trial. And it's the first time I ever started hearing about DNA. So when I would, I mean, I was in, so wrapped up in that trial, like everybody was, you know, and I was just wrapped up in it, not because it was a black dude killing a white chick. It was just a big trial, you know, and I was just into it. And I remember start reading this stuff about DNA and about how we're all connected and how we're all human beings and we're all the human species. And, and I knew that these scientists weren't writing the stuff that was being published in papers and put in the newspapers, that they weren't writing these things because... You know, uh, they want to prove Frank Mink and his beliefs wrong. You know what I mean? Because, like, I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. So I'm thinking that these scientists, you know, that. but I, for one moment I knew that these scientists weren't writing these papers to prove Frank wrong. They were writing them because they were fact. And it destroyed all that I had learned in the Aryan Nations Christian identity movement that God made us all different. And there's reasons why. And as the science is saying that that's not true. So all this was going into this at the time, and I just, it just got out. Like it was not just a one day thing. It was things kept consistently being proven wrong, or other things kept being consistently proven right. And humanity, I noticed, was went out when humanity had its chance. Humanity would always come out of us human beings, and we'd always pull through stuff. So I wanted to be on the good side of humanity. And it did it take a while to. Uh... Because it's like when you're, I guess, I guess you could say programmed. I mean, that it's hard when something is so ingrained in you. I mean, would it take, even though you were out and and knew that's not what you wanted to be, would thoughts creep up now and again, or were you just pretty vi- vigilant on I'm out and I'm changing my life? No, it was it was probably it was probably about a year. I would say it took of you know I would I would drive in through South Philly. I see a black dude standing on the street corner selling food stamps. You know, they used to sell food stamps where I grew up, you know, 50 cents on the dollar. So you can buy, you know, you know, $10 worth of food stamps for five bucks, right? So this dude would be like, hey, you know, 50 cents on the dollar. And, you know, I knew I was a kid what that meant, so I knew he was selling food stamps. But then I was thinking, see, that's what I'm talking about right there. That's, that's, and then I would say, wait a minute, my mom and stepfather do the same thing that it's doing out of their house. Like, who am I? You know, or like an Asian woman would cut me off and, you know, the stereotype, like, Oh, here we go. And I would look over and think, Oh yeah, that's what everyone's talking about. Rush drivers. And I say, wait a minute, my aunt 
has been in like 15 accidents just in this year alone. It's just a white, you know, like I was just kept doing that type of stuff. So, and I kept kind of deprogramming myself to the fact that, you know, we're human beings and, and some are down and out and some aren't. So, and how about the anger? Cause I mean, you had so much anger. I was wondering if it took a while to, you know, I was an angry kid too. And it kind of took me years to just sort of squelch that and put it somewhere else. Like, how long did, did you, I mean, do you still have a temper or? Uh, no, I mean, I don't have a temper where I put my hands on somebody. Um, you know, just a couple of days ago, I had my son in the hockey practice, just me and him, you know, he's 10 year old and, and he knows some of my story, but there was a guy who uh, was just sitting at a, a stop sign and he could have went like 10 times and he didn't go like, and we're stuck behind him. So I just beeped on the horn, you know, now, now I live in the Midwest where beeping on a horn is a lot different in Philly. Everyone beeps on the horn, you know, New York, everyone beeps on the horn. It's not a big deal. It just means like, Hey, I'm here. Let's pay attention. Let's go. Well, this guy took it to being like, I wanted to fight him. And this funny thing is this Midwest guy, he finally goes and then he stops his car. So that I have to go around him. And he's like, you want to do something about this buddy? And again, this guy doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know I'm rip his throat out so i just my but my son's like uh oh and this guy's like you want to do something about it buddy and i said no i said sir i got my kid in the car that's not how i roll today and the guy goes oh, you, you know you know i like, don't want you to ask kick in front of your son and my son's just like looking at me and i'm just like hey buddy uh that's not going to happen with or without my son in the car that's not even going to happen so let's just move on here because i got my son somewhere and uh and that's just not the way before I would have jumped right out of the car. I had a whole car full of hockey sticks. I mean, really, I had a whole trunk full of hockey. I mean, this would have popped it and it would have been on. But I know that that's not right. And then that's what my son goes. Dad, you guys, if you if you would have gotten a fight with him, and this is great because my son's pretty has a lot of character. He says, Dad, if you would have gotten a fight with him, I would have got out and kicked him right in the balls if he even had any, right? <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, Son, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be proper for me to do that. It wouldn't be, you know, that's not right for me to do something like that, no matter how much he's asking for it. I said, the only place you have the right to fight is in a rink or in a ring, you know, because, my, you know, we're a big hockey family and uh, I'm not anti-violence, you know, I'm, I'm all about dropping the gloves, you know, in, in pro hockey and, you know, whatever. But, and, you know, there's been times in my life in, in men's league hockey where, um, you know, big bully guys come, in the, come into the league and think they're going to come in because they're, you know, work out every day, that they're going to come around and push, you know, guys who have jobs the next day, they're going to come in and push them around for their own ego. And then they come to me and uh, we drop the gloves and it's men's league hockey and then, you know, fight happens. And at the end of the game, I make sure to say, Hey, you know, all good. We don't take us off the rink and, you know, respect for the game. And, but I haven't been in a physical altercation in I don't know, 10, 15 years. And I try to avoid them. That's, uh, what the real hard guys do in my life that I've studied now, because now I look at who, you know, growing up, I always thought the hard guy was the one who got out of the car and punched some dudes, you know, face him for disrespecting him. I thought that was hard. And I'm starting to realize like the real hard guys are the ones who find their way out of it. The real hard guys are the ones that aren't behind a piece of glass on Christmas time, talking through a phone to their family on Christmas because some guy disrespected me. So now I'm going to make my family come visit me on Christmas in a prison and I'm behind glass. And you know, that's, that's the coward way. The real hard guys are the ones that find their way out of this stuff. You brought up an interesting point earlier too. It's like, how much of this do you share with your children? And, or are you waiting for like a opportune time? It's also too. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, I have older children who like my, my oldest daughter, who's 21 or going to be 21. Um, the one who I had when I was in prison, you know, she knows everything. She read the book. She's been to some of my lectures. Um, you know, she knows everything. Then my 16 uh, year old son, he knows a lot, but he, he told me before, he's like, I'm, I'm probably never going to read my, read your book dad. Just, just not my thing. And not that he doesn't read cause he's kind of my nerd kid. He's the one that like loves, you know, doctor who, and you know, travels the world to go do humanitarian stuff. And he's just like, I just, you know, you're just my dad and it's just the way it is. And you know, daddy knows a lot of cool, famous people and that's what's cool with him. And, um, and then there's, uh, you know, like I brought my son to go meet um, good friends with Matis Yahoo. So like you know, every time Matis is around, we always like get together. And my son's like, like, wow, daddy knows, you know, so that's like all he cares about. And then my 10 year old son, um, he knows there's some stuff. He knows 
again, yeah, he knows he's the one that I will share with him moments, stuff like that, what just happened. But he knows that daddy was in jail, you know, and that because we were talking a couple of weeks ago, he brought up about, do they really put kids in jail? And I said, yeah, you know, daddy was there when I was a kid. I, I was in and out of juvenile halls when I was a kid. And, you know, we we're talking about like all that type of stuff and food. And, you know, he's, my son was a pretty privileged choice. He's, he's a hockey, he's a hockey star. So he's, you know, plays on all these different hockey teams and travels all over the country. And he's 10 years old. And so, uh, he's my athletic son, but, uh, we, we talk about stuff and, Again, he's the one that like uh, you know he knows that daddy knows you know slash and you know you know so and daddy has a lot of pro hockey friends so I'm super cool because whenever my son goes to hockey tournaments he has a bunch of guys in the NHL that text him and say good luck to him you know it's like daddy's awesome so <laughs> you know and then I have a four year old daughter who is uh, doesn't know anything except for you know that daddy's awesome and and that she's queen bee of my world and that's just the way it goes and. Um, that's how a four-year-old girl should act, and you shouldn't have to worry about daddy's past. So, uh, how so that's how it's all broken down that way, I guess. How fulfilling is it to have gone from your 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 broken family childhood to now having what sounds like a very complete family life? Uh, you know, I, I I do the opposite of what I think I should do. <laughs> that's how. Yeah, I mean, you know, really, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I'm a hockey coach. It's one of my jobs. I mean, one of the things I do is I try to get more black and Latino kids to play the game, but I also coach hockey. So I coach a lot of my son's hockey teams. It's one of the, you know, the, before you called me, that's what I'm doing. I'm going over our uh, practice plan for tonight because my son plays on this one elite team that goes roller hockey, does both roller and ice. But anyway, so, I mean, that's, you know, my life is about that. My life is about my kids, you know, besides when I'm on like a speaking tour, uh, I'm home and, and I'm coaching hockey and I'm working in that world. And, um, I, I just, I don't know. I, I just love that my kids do have what I never had. I love that my kids will never go hungry and they will never think that there's anything in the world, uh, above them. And, uh, they also know that, uh, it's a, it's a tough world and I make sure that my kids are not spoiled brats and, uh, that they, you know, have to, do good things to, to get good in this world. And uh, me and my son, me and my daughter, we always have a, a thing when we take a, a walk every day. Like we'll take a walk or every other day when, when it's not freezing cold here in the Midwest, we'll take the dog for a walk. And um, we always pick up one piece of trash each. That's just like our tradition. You know, we pick up one piece of trash and, we, and when we get to our final destination, we throw it away because we just want to clean up something. And then we just do that all the time. And my daughter loves that. As soon as we go outside the door, she starts looking for trash to pick up. And what's funny is now when I took her back to Philadelphia, we were in South Philly, it's filthy there. And she was like out of her mind, wanted to pick up every piece of trash. So, and the other thing that's funny is now I walk around with a little pug with a pink leash when I used to walk around with two pit bulls all the time. <laughs> like things have so changed. So, and so it's just, uh, I don't know. My, you know, I'm, I married a, a really terrific woman, and and my daughter that I have with an, with another woman who, you know, when I was in penitentiary, you know, we're great friends, and uh, me and my daughter are great friends. And then my son, uh, my older son, my my 16 year old, he he is by another woman, and me and her are great friends. And so I just, you know, when they ask me to do something, I do it. You know, when my son needs braces, I somehow get the money to, you know, in a in a legal way, I get the money to to get braces for my son and I do the right things and, you know, flying back and forth and they're, they're just my, my world and, and hopefully keep that. As long as I stay sober, I can do all these things. And that's something we really didn't get much into, but as long as I stay clean and sober, I can do these things. So do you, do you ever get in touch or do has anyone get in touch with you from, from like uh, the South Philly skinhead days or even like G or Jello? Have you lost touch with those guys? Uh, uh, G's the only one I haven't got a hold of. Uh, Jello has been one of the guys that have reached out. Uh, a couple other guys that are in the book, um, Slick Rick. Um, so a couple of those other guys, there was a guy in there. Uh, we changed his name, but it was, his name was Maurice. And Maurice has got, you know, a lot of these people have gotten a hold of me, you know, email wise or whatever. Just, hey, I read your book, loved it, you know, that type of stuff. So um, old, old skinheads, though, like, ones that are still in the movement, they don't, 
really talk to me much and that's fine um but the one a lot of the ones that are ex-skinheads now a lot of them we all kind of talk and there's there's a whole organization called life after hate which is all ex ex kind of high-ranking members that have all gotten out of the movement and now do good things in the world so there's a whole organization of us called life after hate was it the the infamous slick rick the wasn't he la drug dealer no slick rick was um he was a Latin king, a white Latin king. Well, you think he was half white, half Latino, but he was a, one of the he was the Latin king guy that I was selling three way calling to in the joint, and I was selling him three way calling, and he started smoking weed with me, and I never really smoked weed all that much. And he was the one that me and him were smoking weed and uh, lieutenants, the guards came on our tier and people put out the alarm and Slick Rick ran out of my cell, which was, you know, which he should have done. I would have done too, but he left me kind of myself smelling weed and these guards walked by. And, you know, again, I wasn't a big pothead at all at the time. So I'm freaking out and paranoid. And these guards walk by myself smells like weed. And I hadn't had a chance to burn anything to take the smell away. And they stopped. And I'm like, oh, my God, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. And then they walked back, and they all looked in my cell, and I'm like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. And then they kept on walking. And I was like, oh, thank God. Like, I'm never smoking this stuff again, you know, that type of thing. And then the next day, I had gotten a letter from Eternal Affairs in the prison. It said, you know, my prison number was B25509. It said, B25509, come down to Eternal Affairs. And I had a, you know, a little code with a check next to it. And I went to some of my higher-ranking Aryans, and I'm like, yo, what's this? And they're like, oh, dude, you got to go get, take a piss test. And I went down to Eternal Affairs, and they popped out this little cup on me. And they said, here, get the piss in this cup. And I knew, I just knew I couldn't because my urine was going to be hot. So I just said, I can't pee in your cup. And they said, why not? I said, religious reasons. And I said, what religion is that? And I said, I don't know, dude, the kind you can't pee in a cup. That's all I know. <laughs> So I wound up getting a max transfer because of Slick Rick smoking weed with me. So anyway, that was one of the things he got a hold to me about was that he remembered that. And he remembered that I was an athlete that played with all the black dudes and I was really good. And he used to hear about that. So, yeah. So to, to, to wrap it up, is there um, uh, websites and whatnot people can find your, I know your book can be purchased at uh, hawthornbooks.com. Uh but if they wanted to reach out and have you speak or anything, any information that they could come and find you. Yeah, there's a, there's a website that's frankmink.com that, uh, again, I'm not that savvy, but some, some, a really nice guy made this for me and like just basically set it all up for me. And, and it goes to my, my Facebook page and, but you can go to frankmink.com or look up autobiography or recovering skinhead page on Facebook. And, you know, there's a lot of people always on there interacting and you, yeah, you can get a hold of me through, through any of that. And, um, you know, you can buy the book, yeah, at Hawthorne at my publisher's website or Amazon or Barnes and Nobles, still on the bookshelves at Barnes and Nobles. So, you know, you can do any of that stuff. I also do a hockey program called Harmony Through Hockey where I teach uh, mostly younger black and Latino males. I integrate them into our leagues in, in the Midwest where I live. And so we always look for someone to sponsor a kid. I mean, for roller hockey, it's only $200 to sponsor a kid. That's all of his equipment, all of his jerseys, and all of his uh, league fees, which they used to do ice hockey. And it just, it's so much more expensive for ice hockey. So I just switched it over to roller because I coach both anyway. And it's just so much easier to introduce people into the game because most kids come knowing at least how to roller skate a little bit. You know, I'm not starting from zero zero with them. So, um, so people want, if we want to look into to donating or sponsoring a kid, I give you all the information on how to do that. And 100% of all the money goes to the kid playing hockey. It's not a money making deal for me, uh, on coaching the kids. So, and, uh, that's something I meant to ask earlier too, when you go and speak to kids in juvie hall, uh, do you see, do, do you see the effect you're having on them? Cause I know a lot of times kids are hard and they want to be too cool, especially if there's other kids around. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to check my own over. I'm, I'm probably one of the best in the country at speaking because sometimes I go to places and I'm the only white person. Like I just did a Houston, I was in Houston, they have a max, uh, juvenile detention center right in downtown Houston. Their juvie center is like a max prison. And so I go in there and, you know, at the end, even all the guards are like, man, we never had someone come in and talk to the kids like that. So, uh, so, I mean, I, I definitely think I'm an effect. I hear back from a lot of kids who, 
no, you know, I mean, and I talk about, it's not just like, oh, just be a good person. I, I also talk about how to pick a, the right girl to be with. You know, I say, look, you could be with a girl or a woman. You know, I said, I'm blessed I happen to find a good woman in my life. I said, but if, you know, because Jewy kids, you know, they're still trying to be dating active. I said, here's the difference. I said, a girl, you start dating some hood rat girl. She always demands attention, right? And sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, sometimes she gets you in fights, sometimes she tells you that some dude is talking about you so that she sees that you go fight for her. I said, she's always demanding attention. I said, you, you find a real woman, she just demands respect, and you'll see the difference. And man, that always sticks with all the, the boys, always. Like, they always like, yeah, that, you know, because they most of their life being in juvie only 16, 17 years old, they've only dated hood rat girls. And they know that what I'm speaking is the truth that these girls are usually troublemakers. And if you can change, even the girl that you're dating could be something could be some, you know, so, so the kids love, you know, I'm really good at it. And there's a whole good crew of us, the guys that I'm friends with that also go speak at juvie centers. And some of them are old black gangbangers and some are old Latino gangbangers. And we've actually, we're, the last couple of years, we've been trying to get like a bus tour together. We really, we're going to do this. We're still trying to do it, but I don't know how well we get it done, but we wanted to get it sponsored where we can start out and we do like a go across the country on a bus and we do every juvenile detention center for free for no charge to them at all. And, you know, whoever is covering it, you know, Microsoft, we, we've been talked to them before Red Bull and, you know, talks always fall through. But anyway, these, are, you know, this was a great plan that we'd all put together. These three speakers, a black guy, a white guy, and a Latino guy who were all former formers as they call us and we were going to go speak across the country and so someday we'll get that together but that sounds great well uh thank you very much frankie for taking out the time to do this no thank you thanks for asking me to be on your show thank you very much for listening to conversations with matt dwyer i hope you enjoyed it uh you could do me a favor you could donate some dough there go to my page uh the matt dwyer at feralaudio.com there's a donate button donate whatever you can how about skip a cup of coffee at Starbucks this week donate the three to six dollars to me if you can't afford to donate I fully understand uh, you could buy you could go to my Amazon link there and then anything you buy on Amazon you can uh, I get a kickback of that and I'd greatly appreciate it follow me on Twitter Matt underscore DeWire at twitter.com tell your friends about my show write a review on iTunes give it five stars give it six stars I know they don't allow it but Try it anyway. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I hope you're well. I love you.
branch of the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. <laughs> the NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.